I'm speaking with Billy Lombardo. Billy is the 2011 Nelson Algren winner for fiction. He is the author of four books of fiction, The Logic of a Rose, Chicago Stories, How to Hold a Woman, The Man with Two Arms, and Meanwhile, Roxy Mourns. His novel, How to Hold a Woman, was reissued as Morning Will Come by Tortoise Books in January 2021. A high school English literature and creative writing teacher for 25 years at the Latin School of Chicago, and for nine years at other Chicago area high schools, he now runs his own writing and editing business called Writing Prose. Billy is the founder of Polyphony Lit, a global literary platform for high school writers and editors, at the core of which is a literary magazine run by an international staff of more than 200 high school editors around the world who comment on every one of the thousands of submissions that come to them every year. I want to start by talking a little bit about your background. What part of Chicago did you grow up in? I grew up in uh, Bridgeport, just about six or seven blocks from, uh, maybe about a mile from Comiskey Park, White Sox Park. And what was your experience growing up there like? My first book, The Logic of a Rose, touches on those areas, on that uh, window of time. It was pretty racially intolerant there. I wasn't quite aware of that when I was just a boy, but I became increasingly more aware of that. When I entered my uh, adolescence, you know, when I was 12, 13, growing up there, I lived on a street called Poplar Street till I was about five. And then we moved to above a a bakery, Dressel's Bakery. It was on 33rd and Wallace and lived there for what I've always called my middle boyhood from like seven to 12 or so. It was idyllic in a lot of ways. It was just this working, thriving bakery below us, a play lot across the street from us. And most of my playing boyhood took place right around there. We really never moved much off a couple blocks, but I felt it was a pretty uh, idyllic uh, boyhood. It was rich with stories, totally working class, Irish and Italian neighborhood, blocks away from where the Dailies lived, Mayor Daly. I was doing a lot of poetry, performance poetry at the Green Mill. I grew up in a house with no books. And I just realized at some point that I needed to start reading if I wanted to develop as a writer in any way. And one of the first books that I read was Stuart Dybeck's Close to Chicago. And I went to see him at, uh, he was at a literary festival at St. Ignatius. And I introduced myself to him after it. And I said, I'm from Bridgeport. And he said, oh, where'd you live? And I said, I lived above a bakery. And he said, where? And I said, 33rd and Wallace. And he goes, Dressel's Bakery. <laughs> and I just felt like, It was a kind of invitation for me to transition into fiction because Coast of Chicago was the first book that I ever read that kind of had mentioned Bridgeport in there. And it was the first book I ever read that had places that I kind of grew up around. And he ended up writing a blurb for the first book. He's actually a pretty good friend. My partner, Amy Danzer, is good friends with him too. So he's he's sort of in our lives when he's not in the Keys fishing and writing. How would you say that experience of growing up there has really shaped you going forward as an adult? I feel like I was really shaped by it in a lot of ways. I felt different than a lot of people that I grew up around. It was a kind of, uh, it was just sort of a rough neighborhood, but I'm not a, like a rough person. I'm not a violent person, but there was violence around me all the time. And I felt sort of protected from that too. I felt like I was different than everybody in some ways. I just, I had a kind of what I think of as a sort of narrator's disposition. I was really quiet. I was 
reflective in ways that I didn't feel my peers were. And I always think of the narrator's sort of personality, the kid who just observes and feels deeply. I sort of always felt like I felt kind of deeply on a more profound level than a lot of my peers were. And that's not to diss them at all. I felt that they sort of understood that in a way and kind of protected me. I've never been in a fight. I've been punched a few times, but I've never been in a fight. And it's a violent place. People just would, they'd fight each other. There'd be fights on the street among friends, <laughs> street fights, which always like flummoxed me greatly. I remember being present at a big fight and not doing anything and never being kind of admonished for it or made fun of for it either. Nobody ever said anything about it. And as I grew up, I just felt like that I was kind of protected and it was never spoken about. But I feel like that shaped me. I've seen very violent things and have been greatly disturbed by them. And I feel like having whatever sort of disposition I had toward that was something that shaped me as a writer. It shaped me as a kind of narrator. I also delivered newspapers. I think about this all the time. I don't know if you've seen Belfast. We just watched it the other night and there's a kid there. I think the character is pretty much the same age I was, but I delivered newspapers from the time I was, I don't know, maybe eight to 12 or 13 years old. And I grew up in a family, as I said, with no books, but they were also not interested in talking about current events or religion or politics at the kitchen table. And the Vietnam War was still going on. And I would deliver these papers. I delivered the Sun-Times and Tribune. And when Nixon visited Beijing, there was his picture on every Tribune. And as I delivered one, there it was again. And every sometimes, and when Mao Zedong died and all these sort of events, I just, my only access to them was by way of headlines. I wrote about that a little bit in the logic of a rose too, but there was this kind of odd connection with the world just by way of headlines that I never read any more deeply into it than the sort of front page of it. I feel somehow responsible. I can't explain any other way why I became a writer. I did not come to writing by way of reading, which is almost to a number. It's almost how everyone else has ever come to it. I feel like I came to reading by way of writing. We were made to read when I was a kid, but there were no books in the house. So we had to read a half hour a day or an hour a day. And so it would be an encyclopedia or anything. It just didn't matter, but we had to read. So I read and I read a lot in terms of uh, just like reading stuff on paper, but I don't remember anything that I ever read. But I came to really appreciating reading by way of writing, by having that kind of time on the stage at the Green Mill was a huge part of my development as a writer. And my poetry was really narrative. It's unschooled poetry. It's just performance stuff. And when I had that opportunity to have the stage and to say something about my story, which was highly narrative, it was natural for me to just kind of move into fiction. And those first stories that I wrote were all about that boyhood, all about those years that I was just kind of quiet and lonely and a little bit sad and just like sort of observing everything. What do you think gave you the ability to really grow through that and to come through that and not necessarily be weighed down by the negative things that happened in your childhood? I don't know. I mean, I was a middle child and for five or six years, I was the baby of the family. And I was sort of a big brother to my younger brother and sister. And my older brothers weren't like big brothers in a lot of ways. 
And so I don't know if sometimes I feel like it had to do with birth order. Sometimes I feel it had to do with me just being, I, I just liked being by myself. And I just feel like I felt a little more deeply than a lot of people that I grew up with. And I don't know what else to sort of assign that quality to. So it's clear to me too, in, in reading your books, how much you love Chicago. What is it about Chicago that you're really passionate about? Part of it was just having grown up in Bridgeport. It was such a sort of rich experience. My father spoke Italian and it felt to me like it was an Italian neighborhood, but it was really more Irish than anything. And there were Italians on either side of us. And so I just felt like there was this kind of warmth and the richness of the language. My relationship with it also had to do with my paper route. I feel like I was on a daily basis just walking those streets and just kind of thinking. It's a solitary experience just by yourself. I remember I used to, because I grew up Catholic too, and I was an altar boy and I'd make the sign of the cross at the beginning of my paper route. And then I would make the sign of the cross at the end of it. The whole thing was a kind of prayer and I would forget about it like all the time. I'd forget that I was in this sort of middle prayer or whatever. And I would just think of people and I would just pray for them. And so there was this sort of, I don't know, just a kind of a prayerful relationship that I had with the city and with the weather because it was brutal. And I actually do think that there's some empirical data to back this up, but it was cold in the 70s. It was like really cold in Chicago. And it was just a kind of brutal relationship kind of with the weather. I remember, and I never was like properly like shod. I never had like great boots or great gloves or anything like that. So I would always have a big baggy on my foot and then the sock over it to keep it from being wet and cold. And so it was about that too. It was this kind of connection with the weather and the people. They knew my father. My last name is Lombardo and Joey the Clown Lombardo, the mafia figure was always in the paper. And I just, I remember bringing a newspaper to the Lennon's house. They were in the same parish that I grew up in, St. David's. And I remember her just saying, so your dad was in the paper this morning. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's showing me Joey the Clown Lombardo is like on the front page or whatever. Before I learned of the neighborhood as this kind of racially intolerant place, I learned of it as a rich place to grow up. I just never had a lot of money, but I felt like I had a rich childhood growing up in this environment where people were sort of looking out for me and I was protected. To be able to grow up in this sort of a violent place, I mean, it wasn't terribly violent, but there were like, you know, I would be sitting on a corner and someone would go by and if they weren't white, they were likely to get a bottle or something thrown at them. But I didn't recognize any of that stuff until I got a little older. I didn't see this sort of ugliness of that growing up. As Bridgeport has diversified over time, how is it like when you go back there now? Yeah, whenever I go back, it's mostly for a baseball game when I go back. And I used to park at my best friend's house and then walk seven or eight blocks to the park. And it feels, at least on that walk, of course, so many of the houses have changed and they're just like million dollar homes or whatever. But a lot of the kind of standouts are still there. The two flats that haven't really changed all that much. And I feel a little bit nostalgic every time I go past there. I'm certainly happy that when I started writing the stories for The Logic of a Rose, it was the same spring that Leonard Clark, I don't know if you remember that Leonard Clark story. He was a black kid that came over from one of the housing projects east of Bridgeport. And he came to get air on his bicycle tires and he was beat into a coma by a few of the kids from the neighborhood. And that was 
I think it was 1997. It was the first day of spring in 1997, right around now, this time. And I mean, that felt kind of recent. I was an adult by then. I had a four or five-year-old son by then. And this kind of stuff was still going on. You know, there was still some of that hatred. But I always feel like this is my place. I mean, I was 17 by the time I left it. So it wasn't like I was there for decades and decades. I was 16 or 17 when I left the place, but I still feel tied to it and connected to it. You know, and a lot of that is because of my book too. There were never any books that were written about Bridgeport before my book came along. And so that kind of connected me to the place in a way. And so that there are also people who know of me through that book. And that's sort of solidified my relationship with the place as well. What was it like when you first ventured outside of Bridgeport and saw more of the city? That would probably be through uh, my high school experience. I went to Quigley South. It was a seminary high school, and it's on 77th and Western. And we had some friends from Beverly or whatever, and so we'd go to their places every once in a while. We'd go to their neighborhood, and it was just so odd to me to see a street with like 100th Street or whatever on it, because we were from 31st Street, 31st, 35th, 32nd, all around there. And of course, there were black kids that we went to school with and were pretty good friends with. It was still, I guess it was mid-70s when I was in high school. So it wasn't like it was always peaceful and pacific among all the people there. But I guess that was a big part of me venturing out. We really never went anywhere. We didn't have money. We didn't travel other than to Michigan for a week every summer or something like that. So yeah, it was a pretty insulated place. And I still feel like that about whenever I go back to, I went back for a funeral not too long ago and same people still there and the same kind of insulated kind of experience they have for the most part. I don't think of the place as the birthplace of many like worldly people. One of the things I've noticed in your writing is that you really have a gift for expressing things in a concise way. How do you manage to paint such vivid imagery and do so with so few words? Oh, well, thanks. Once I started reading for craft, reading just got really, really interesting to me. And whenever I just read someone who can do that, I'm just always amazed by it. And so I'm always trying to find a tighter way to say things in a few words. I'm fascinated by reading as a writer. I didn't know anything about writing when I wrote The Logic of a Rose. It took me a long time to do that. I mean, there's a lot of things in there. I'll switch points of view three times in a paragraph. I did things in there that nobody would do because you're just not supposed to do them. And I don't mind that at all. I like seeing someone's sort of growth as an artist in their work. But once I started reading for craft and once I would hear some of the sort of rules of fiction and learned about things like significant detail and how to present dialogue and how to insert a pause into dialogue or something like that. I just am always fascinated with that. I'm always studying. Right now, I'm rereading A Death in the Family by James Agee. And I read it when I was maybe, I guess I was 30, 33 or whatever. And I didn't know anything. Even when I look at what I underline there, I would say, why did I underline that? Like, why did I not underline this sentence? And so I'm constantly revisiting things and saying, what is he doing here? This is amazing. And the desire to do that, and it probably had a lot to do with reading poetry too on the stage. 
you have only one opportunity to sort of make your point, you know, and there's a lot of people who just aren't great listeners. I'm a visual learner. And so you have to be really be doing something for me to be holding on to every word that you're saying when you're expressing it yourself orally, because I just need to see it. And so when you're on stage and you've only got one opportunity to do that, you've got to do something. And so I suppose that had a lot to do with it too, to just try to nail something when you're on stage and it's in a bar and people are smoking and people are talking and people are ordering drinks and all that stuff. When you can silence a place like that, you just really know you're doing something. And once you do that, I think you want to do it every minute of your life. You just, you want to always do that to move the listener or the reader in some way. Was poetry sort of too an inspiration for you always growing up? No, not at all. When I started teaching English, I was at the Latin school, I started teaching English. I had been teaching for many years, but never uh, English or creative writing. And I never studied poetry. And we were supposed to teach it. We were supposed to have a poetry unit, no matter what we were teaching, we were supposed to have a kind of poetry unit. So if you're teaching modern English or British lit or any kind of literature class, it was a sort of a genre approach. We were going to teach short stories. We we're going to teach poetry and novels and plays or whatever. And I steered away from teaching poetry because I just was afraid of it. I just didn't understand it. I didn't see it as accessible. I didn't understand its rules or anything. And so it was not until I started reading poetry a little more when I finally decided to do it, to teach it, it was E.E. E. Cummings, Anyone Lived in a Pretty Hot Town, that I taught. And I just said, I'm going to bring this into class. I don't understand this poem. I'm going to bring it into class, and we're just going to do it together. And I'm going to just approach it the same way I would approach it, the same way I think that they would approach it. And that is to just like try to find its certainties, try to find its rules. And that's what we did as a class. I was like, all right, let's look at the certainties. What's here? How many stanzas are there? Where's the punctuation? All the things that you cannot argue against. And that's what we started with. We probably spent three days on this poem. And it's just an amazing experience to me, how you could learn poetry just from reading a, a particular poem. So I really don't feel at all that I grew up with it. And I still feel like I'm learning it. Whatever I've taught in the last number of years, we always start off the class with a poem of the day just to sort of get into that arena of language and to sort of remind each other that we're in this arena in which language is paramount. So I still don't feel like I, I understand it. The stuff that I've written, I don't even think of it as poetry. It's just a kind of storytelling. It's narrative. I have friends who are like poets, taught by Pulitzer Prize winning poets and so I don't even think that they know that I have a book of poetry out there because it's not poetry. It's something else that's going on. It's a kind of gateway writing to fiction or something. You talk about working through it with the students too. I feel like one of the great parts about teaching is that ability to really learn from the students along the way. Yeah, that's amazing too, especially if they're pretty smart kids. Kids will notice stuff. I don't know how many times I've taught Catcher on the Rye, but kids would bring up stuff their first time through it. And I'd be like, oh my God, that's incredible to me that you could sort of find that your first time through it. Yeah, that's an amazing experience. That's why I love, I just love that sort of group approach to learning. And I always tell them, don't look up anything about this poem. You have to promise me that you're not going to look up anything about this poem just to show them that we could do this on our own. We can find out far more about this poem than if we just Google it. 
So I feel like one of the themes, particularly in your book, Morning Will Come, is this theme of working through trauma and really coming out on the other side of it. Would you say that your life experiences are really what inspired you to kind of take that approach to your writing? I feel like one of the things that we do as humans is we imagine the narratives of everyone in our lives. We're trying to figure it out because we ask somebody how they're doing and we can never be certain that it's true, that they're telling us the truth, that they're getting at it. They might be lying to us intentionally. They might be withholding because they're afraid. They might not have the answers. They might never have articulated these things. And so we have to imagine the narrative. I feel like I came upon this term independently. I'm not the first person to think about it, but I had never read about it, this idea of the imagined narrative. And William Maxwell does it just beautifully in So Long, See You Tomorrow, where he stops what he's doing and he just imagines this narrative. And this is what happens in literature all the time. We're sort of reading stories in this literary manner. And that's how I started looking at life and started like thinking about that same sort of literary approach to life and people's stories. I think great psychiatrists and psychologists are good at this. They just look at life in a sort of literary manner and try to help people figure out how they're responding to life and navigating life in a pretty literary way. And so your question about sort of working through trauma, I feel like my approach to it is similar. I feel like we use the word trauma so much that it feels disingenuous to speak of my own life as being traumatic. I mean, I've had difficult things, but I've also taught on the South Side of Chicago in Bronzeville, and I don't understand how those kids take it through the day. And three kids I had taught had been shot last summer, and one of them's wearing an ankle monitor, and one of them was writing, and I said, uh, I said, do you want to write something down for this? And he said, like, no. And I said, just put your name on it so that I know that it was yours and I'll be reminded that you weren't able to do it or whatever. And he said, could you write it for me? And I said, sure, I'll write it for you. And then I said, what's wrong? He said, I sprained my wrist. I sprained my left hand or something like that. And then I asked him at the end of class, everyone was filing out of class. And I said, how long has it been bothering you? You know, and he, he was like, he looked over his shoulder because there was still one kid left in class. He waited for the kid to leave. And he said, I didn't sprain it. I got shot in the head. I got shot in the head this summer. And it's just nerve damage or whatever. And I was like, what? The? So to speak about trauma to me is like, I don't, I don't even know if I could use that word for it. But I do know sadness. I do know grief. And trying to language that in some way has always been a kind of goal of mine to try to language the thing that I don't even understand fully and just approach it, find access to it through some other thing that I've experienced. And the morning will come like that. I haven't experienced that kind of death in my own lived experience, but I remember receiving, it was first published as How to Hold a Woman. And it's the same book. It's just retitled and edited again. But I remember getting an email from someone who lost her brother when she was in college. And she said, it's the first thing I've ever read that I feel like sort of nailed that kind of grief. And my access point to that grief was mostly 
a failed marriage that gave me access to that grief. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do with these experiences that I don't fully understand. I have to create a character that has experienced this sort of thing. We just access it through whichever way we imagine the narrative. We imagine what it is that's going on because so rarely do we have the actual answers. In closing, are there any upcoming projects that you have on the way? I'm working on a couple things. I keep sort of switching projects. I think I'm working on what's well, going to be a memoir, and it's just written in second person to my son. It's written as a letter to my son. But I've got two or three novels or books, and I've got a book on craft that I'm kind of excited about, too. It's, I just picked up this job, this teaching job. I'm a bit of a binge writer. I've never really been able to write while I was teaching, but I could do it on the weekends and I could do it on spring break and I could do it in the summertime. I just can't dabble. I can't do like an hour a day here. I guess sometimes I can get into that habit if I'm working on something, but I feel I have to sort of reacquaint myself with the project all the time. So I'm forever waiting for two weeks off to kind of work on whatever it is I want to work on. Yeah, I totally understand that. Appreciate you taking time out to talk today. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks so much, Jared. Thanks for reaching out to me.